EP Ag Chats, brought to you by Air EP. Conversations that connect generations of experience and innovation in agriculture on the Air Peninsula. The good bits, the bad bits, and everything in between. This project is supported by FRRR through funding from the Australian Government's Future Drought Fund. Hello, everybody. I'm Lockie Seger. I'm on a family farm, I run a mixed enterprise in the medium rainfall zone, compromising a thousand hectares of crop and a self-replacing flock, compromising of 800 ewes. I'll be interviewing David Giddings because he has led the way in turning formerly harsh country in this area into high production land. So Dave, tell us uh, where and what do you farm and a bit about yourself? I farm west of Winilla, between Winilla and, and Wongri, uh, over about a 15 kilometre radius probably in a medium rainfall area, about 450 to 500 mils. It's a mixed farm comprising about 2,000 hectares of crop and about 1,200 hectares of grazing. Starting from the start, what education or study did you partake in before coming home on the farm? Never really knew what I wanted to do as a kid. I wanted to actually do commerce but I wasn't smart enough for that. I took my second choice, which was agriculture, through the University of Adelaide at the Roseworthy campus. Started that in 91, yep, and graduated in 94. So that was a degree in applied science, bracket agriculture. I was actually very happy that I did it, looking back now. It had a practical focus, plenty of science involved in the degree, but it was practically Based. So we spent time on, on all enterprises, poultry, dairy, uh, dryland farming, um, et cetera, et cetera. We had to work on the farm effectively one day a week or fortnight. It wasn't a pure science degree. And to be quite honest with you, I wish it was still around because there's a big gap in agriculture at the moment between science and people that have practical application of science. Yeah, I see it as a real problem, to be quite honest. Uh, outside of that, obviously finished year 12. I did on-farm training through TAFE when I came home. And I did a strategic planning course. It was around 2004 to about 2006. So it was four, five and six around that time. It was an excellent course. It taught you how to think as a manager. It taught you what to focus on and how to address the the main things in your business, um, the priorities really, how to prioritise what's important in your business and what's not. I wish that sort of thing was actually taught at university. It was highly valuable. It was set in a board structure where you sat around, around a table with five businesses at the board. You brought your problems, your business problems to the board and each individual business assessed your business and then we got experts in in each area to to address the issues and give advice. There was heaps of other stuff involved in the course, but that, that was the real basics of it, and it was extremely valuable. That's pretty much it, really, for the things you can have a plaque on your, on your wall about. So when you came first came home on the farm, how much land did you have then and a bit of a timeline on how you've got to where you are now. So we currently farm 3,200 hectares, of which 200 hectares I don't own or lease. 
the rest we own. I hold my father with a great level of respect. He, he was an outstanding farmer, in my opinion. He was not hugely technically based, but he knew the one thing that made your money in farming, and that's buying land. We all get very caught up in what we do and the crops we grow and the livestock we run, and we get very production focused. But I've had a few people explain to me over the years, people that I've respected, including my father, that the most important thing you do as a farmer is you buy land because that is the asset that you will own and it will appreciate while you own it and it's the way you generate wealth. You can make cash and what you do as a production farmer is you make cash and that cash services debt and it buys the assets that long-term generate wealth. So I suppose my father was outstanding in teaching me that. He worked very hard. He, like I said, he wasn't hugely technically based, but he worked and he kept working continuously and he kept buying land. So, so when I came home, we had, he'd actually just bought a farm, basically because he knew I was coming home and he'd be able to crack the whip on me. And we had three other farms. So we had two and a half farms, really. So it's a soldier settlement area. So the farms are roughly a 1,000 acres each or 400 hectares. So we own, I don't know, eight or nine now. They're not all full farms. So he'd just bought a farm. So we had three and a half farms. We had about 3,500 acres. Yeah, however many hectares that is. But I suppose now that's effectively doubled. I didn't really change the world in what I did. I just continued to do what Dad did. So the way it really worked was that Dad was a mixed farmer too. He had, it was uh, predominantly pasture lay. He'd grow lupins sometimes, but mainly pastures, and then grow wheat or barley. He never really grew, he grew some lupins, but he never grew lupins in a rotation without a pasture phase in it until I came home. No, that's wrong, except on one paddock, which he cropped continuously from 1980. I haven't asked Dad hugely about this. I have a bit, but not so much the numbers. Uh, he worked roughly, just from, from what I can gather on what he did and what I saw as a kid, he would probably get to about 90% equity and then he'd buy land and that would take him back to 75 or 80% equity. Then he'd pay that off steadily, get back to 90% equity and then repeat the process. He started with one block and got to three and a half. Yeah, and I suppose I just carried that on. So I've continued to do that. And my advice to any young farmer would be, that is what you have to do. And you'll get real scared about the price of land and all sorts of things, but just buy the land if you can afford to, because it is always a good investment. Well, that's been my experience and my father's. And I think that will just continue. Look, land values have got sort of detached from the production capacity and the income generating capacity of the land, but the capital value increase or appreciation in, in asset value will continue in land forever. I'm pretty sure of that. I suppose we moved into this area in 1968. It was actually the wettest year on record. We had 43 inches of rain, so Dad got a pretty, he came from Bullory Centre, which was sort of uh, 14, 15 inch area. So he got a very big welcome to uh, Wongri and Manila. It was extremely wet. When I came home from uni, that was 1994. I graduated in 94. 
and we had the three and a half farms. And he'd just bought a farm then. Then in 96, some very good land came on the market. It wasn't a huge amount. It was freehold land. It wasn't a settlement block and that what we call pains. And I said to Dad at the time, I think we should buy that, Dad. And he said, well, if you think we should buy that, you buy it. So effectively, that's what we did. And take my hat off again to my father with that because he, he said, you work it out. He knew I had an education and I was doing the books for the farm then. I did all the production enterprise mix stuff then. I did cash flows, profit and loss, balance sheets, etc. Immediately after I came home from uni, actually my major project in last year at university was a study on our own farm, how to increase increasing production and increasing profitability. So I pretty much just took that um, platform and and looked at buying this land and at the time, the land price was high. It was a crap time to be a farmer. Then the wool price had crashed. We'd had two very wet summers. The price of wheat was not much over $100 a tonne, and you couldn't make money out of sheep. didn't matter what you did. Wool just wasn't worth enough. So it was a tough time. We had a reasonable amount of debt then. Yeah, but in the end, I got the Young Farmers Scheme, which was a government scheme then. They paid half, I think, of the interest from memory which was a help. Interest rates were oh, they're horribly, horribly close to double digit if they weren't then. So we bought the land and I said to Dad, I want to continuously crop it. So that's what we did. Dad had a bit of experience with that. We had no machinery at all. And when I say no machinery, we had a PDO header. We had a 32-row Hallwood combine. We had a homemade boom spray. So we had to modify the combine. We put a trash trash float assembly underneath of it. We used prickle chains at the time because that was where it was at with technology. It was sort of press wheels were just coming in really and they scared us. Anyway, we, we, we did that. Yeah, and we, I paid the farm off in five years with probably a bit of luck and a fair bit of help. And I bought a heap of plant at the end of that period. That was my repayment to my father for using his machinery for the five years previous. Uh, I bought a, an air seeder, bought a boom spray, and we bought a, a self-propelled header. That was slightly before the end of that period. But anyway, from there, I'm trying to think, we bought Laws's farm in about 2000, but we sold a farm then also. So we bought a farm that was about 1,750 acres and we sold one which was 1,000. And I, we did that. That was my choice. Um, we did that because... I was concerned Dad was going to retire and I needed basically a million dollars to retire my father plus and I was concerned about debt. Looking back, it was the wrong thing to do and I've since rebought that farm. Then in 2008, I bought another farm. Then in 2018, I bought McLaren's back and then in 2019, I bought another farm. I haven't bought any land for three years. The price of land since doubled, basically gone up 250%. And I'm sort of at the period now that I'm approaching 50 years old and I really question whether it's worth buying any more land. I don't have a son. I have a daughter. And, um, yeah, the succession thing isn't really happening yet and she's not making a noise of wanting to be a farmer. So that's sort of where it's at. What are traditionally some key challenges farming in our area and what have you done to overcome them? Winilla has an excellent climate, so it rains plenty. It's fairly close to the coast, so it, it's fairly low frost risk. 
and it stays humid. It doesn't get as hot as it does north and inland of where we are. Outside of that, it has crap soil, very crap, really, in the scheme of things. It's a duplex sandy loam. The sandy loam is over clay, fairly ordinary clay, poorly structured, some areas of sodicity, but not a lot of sodicity, and it rains plenty. So our biggest risk in the past has been getting too wet. But I suppose with modern practice and soil amelioration, we've, I wouldn't say we've overcome that 100%, but it is nowhere near the issue that it used to be 20 years ago. So I suppose for me it started, oh, look, it started way back not long after I come home from uni. We, we did some clay spreading and because all our sandy loam, our topsoil, aerosin if you want to call it that, is non-wetting. There's areas that aren't, but predominantly on the whole, you'd call the whole shoot and match non-wetting. It has some level of non-wettingness. Underneath the, the top 0 to 10, basically, which is relatively okay in organic matter, that's sort of 1.5 to 2 in that range, you have gravel or sand and gravel. Most of the time, there is also a really bleached white layer of sand above the clay. And, and the reason for that really bleached layer and the gravel is the water movement. So the water doesn't necessarily move down through the profile. It'll hit the clay and move sideways. And over the years, it's bleached that layer just above the clay and washed all the nutrient out of it. So that, that's like about 0.2% organic matter. I can remember Dave Davenport testing it and it was it's useless stuff absolutely useless so i suppose the initial problem with our soil was non-wettingness that really held up time of sowing one thing that chris boast who was my uh, dryland farming systems lecturer at university and a practicing practicing consultant in gaula he wrote us a list of things in last year at uni of the most important things to concentrate as a, as a farmer and as a cropping farmer the number one thing is the most, the biggest determinant on yield is rainfall, obviously. The second biggest is time of seeding. So, well, time of germination is probably a better way to put it these days. So I always wanted to be able to sow earlier. Because we get so wet, it's really important to have the crop up and away and using water as early in the season as humanly possible. We needed to get rid of this non-wettingness because it was, it was delaying seeding. We'd have to wait for the soil to wet up. We couldn't drag drill it. It wouldn't. In the real early days, we'd cultivate it because it would mix the, the dry and the wet soil up and it would wet up more uniformly after that. But that was only for the first couple of years after uni. Then we worked out you could clay spread and that fixed the whole problem. And, and that was a big thing. It made a pretty big, pretty big improvement in yields, not dramatic, probably in the sort of 15% range, somewhere around that. And then we sort of got into delving probably in the early 2000s, 2005-ish, a bit earlier than that, where we'd run a delver through it. It would, it would have a dual purpose. So it would rip. It would rip that really impervious clay layer and break it up so water could penetrate it easier and roots could also. And then we'd bring, bring the clay to the top and smash it up back then with smudge bars, et cetera, and, and put it in with discs, incorporate it to about 250 deep with discs. And, and that was another step forward from the initial clay spreading. But the real changes came with 
getting serious about ripping and ripping to significant depth. And when I say significant depth, 500 to 1.2 metres and then spading the country with a, effectively a, a big rotary hoe. Um, that did a lot of things. It got rid of that real bleached layer above the clay. It mixed all the gravel in and it brought clay right through the profile. That was the big change. Um, yeah, that, that's made it, it's made our country. At the time, I made the decision to go control traffic also. So we, we did it all at once. I had 35 foot header fronts and a windrow front at the time. So I went to 10.5 meter controlled traffic. I actually went to a four meter track because at the time I was windrowing canola and I couldn't windrow on three meters. So I went to four. This is all 11 years ago. So some time ago now, and it was before three meters was a real standard, um, which it is now and probably 12 meters. But anyway, that's what we did. And I still do that today exactly the same. So we made that decision, if we were going to invest a lot of money in ripping and spading, that we would we would try and make the, the process last as long as possible. So we went to full control traffic. Everything runs on the same lines. There is nothing that doesn't run on the same lines. There is nothing that has ever run outside of my controlled traffic lines on my farm since we started controlled traffic ever, besides the odd random thing where you the header box is full and you haven't got to the end of the paddock and you have to turn around. Um, well, not turn around, but pull over to the side and then pull the chaser in behind the header. That happens a bit, but realistically, I'm fairly anal about it. And we've continued to do the same thing ever since. And that has been extremely beneficial. And anyone looking at big picture, large scale ripping and spading or soil remuneration should highly consider controlled traffic because there is no point spending hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on ripping and spading if you're going to randomly traffic it and run over it all again and ruin what you've done. Please, if you are thinking about large-scale soil amelioration, think about being controlled traffic because I think it's critical. I suppose along with that, we applied high rates of gyps and we got a pH right. The pH thing had, had been happening for 25 years previously, pretty much from the day I came home from uni. pH was in the low fours in calcium chloride, so that, that was no good. So we started spreading lime pretty much immediately. Look, I don't know how many thousand tonnes of lime we would have spread, but probably in the vicinity of fifteen to 20,000 tonne of lime on our farm in the last close to 30 years. Another important thing. We got the pH right. We applied gypsum at the time of, of ripping and spading, and we continue to do that two tonnes every four years just to ameliorate clay. We also put trace elements on at that time also, three kilo elemental, copper, zinc, and manganese, which was a hell of a lot of bags of sulphate, I can guarantee you that, like road trains full. But that also got rid of the natural copper deficiency that our, our soil has. It was all around that stuff. Yeah, that, that probably the main things, but the ongoing development from that has been dry sowing, which was the initial goal to be able to sow earlier because I, I've still got this crisp base stuck in my head saying the second biggest determinant on yield is time of sowing. So dry sowing to me is pivotal. It's critical. You have to do it. There is no choice. If you don't, you don't give your crop the longest growing season potential it can have. I dry sow every year. I aim to get the crop in dry if I can. A lot of years I don't. Things go wrong or it just rains. 
But I aim to start seeding around the 10th of April. Often it's the 15th. But around that time, we get going dry. It works as far as labour goes. I don't have a big seeder. We sow a fit, so it's only 35 foot, 10.5 metres. We sow a couple thousand hectares with that. So it's a reasonable job, but we just start ticking away when it's dry early April. And it works well with labour. I employ three people full time. Yeah, it just fits my business. And it, it just gets away from having to own a 50-foot seeder or a 60-foot seeder or, you know, all of that stuff. I don't have huge big tractors. We run medium-sized two-track John Deere's. They do everything. They run chase bins. They they spread. They pull air seeders. They do everything. It's efficient. You're not having to have own a $600,000 tractor, which you use for 200 hours a year. Oh, look, if I had my time again, I'd be three-metre track width and 12-metre controlled traffic. But really, initially, I suppose, well, probably five years ago, I used to hammer myself about it, thinking, why did you do this like that? But the older I've got, I've thought to myself, well, technology is continuously changing. At the end of the day, 12 metres might not be the standard in 10 years' time. It may well be 15 metres. It might be 18 metres. Who knows? It's going to change no matter what happens, and that will be up to someone else who, who crops that land. That, that will be their choice. I just continue to do what I've always done, and for me it works. And, and as I said, and I want to reinforce this fact, if you're going to spend a lot of money on soil remuneration, make sure if you're not already controlled traffic, you are moving towards it because it is pivotal. Cropping particularly, how do you sustain the profitability, your profitability and production going forward? And what are some things that could perhaps get in the way of that? Well, I think, I think it's sticking to the basics. You, you want to try and keep, keep your system as simple as you can. Look, as a farmer, you're very much just out in the breeze as far as world markets go, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there's a lot of influences on your profitability more so than your production, which are uncontrollable. So I tend not to focus so much on profitability because I know if I, if I get the production right, the profitability will come. So, so it's a given. If you, if you grow a lot, you're going to be profitable. Even if the price of grain is crap, you'll still make more than everyone else because you've grown more than everyone else. It is really that simple. And as a cropper, it is all about how much grain you grow. If you look at any benchmarking, it comes down to the guys who grow the most grain, pretty much irrespective of cost, within reason. You don't go doing stupid things as far as spending money goes, but you have to give the crop the inputs to maximise its potential, especially if you've got it in dry, it's come up early, it's got an excellent growing season on average in front of it, you have to give it everything it can. You, you know, you've modified your soil so all of a sudden it can hold more water than it used to, and I didn't talk much about that, but the water holding capacity of my soil is two and a half times what it used to be. That's been measured. And that's from ripping and spading. Trying to maintain profitability and maintain produ production is about looking after your soil and your system and doing the things you know, which are relatively basic, like getting the crop in dry, giving it the best opportunity, making sure you've got enough in on, making sure you've got all the trace elements required, making sure you haven't got weeds, crop topping, making sure weeds don't set seed, use a mill if you want to use a mill on your header. All of those things, it's really pretty much about the basics, making sure you get those basics. 
a lot of what you do is about organisation. You've just got to be organised. You've got to have things ordered on time. You've got to make sure you are ready to go seeding on the 10th or the 15th of April or whenever you choose to, when you've got your soil in the position that it needs to be in so you can dry soil. Simple things like that, making sure you've got enough labour, your maintenance is done, really probably the basics. There may be well new technology come along, which, and I suppose that's one thing I have done, is probably adopted technology when it's been available, probably as early as anyone has around here, mainly because most of the time there's a benefit in it. There's some things I haven't done because I don't think it really fits my system. Where you can and where you can see that it's going to influence profitability, adopt the technology, work it out, do the research, talk to the people that have already done it, or if they haven't, talk to the people that have designed the system, have designed the piece of machinery, etc. that you're going to adopt to get the most information you can. When you implement it, you, you'll make a few mistakes, and you always do, but you will get a percentage of that benefit that is that is forecast for that for that thing that you're doing. So I, I talk about soil amelioration. For me, that's made a 25% difference in yields long-term since we started. That's a no-brainer, an absolute no-brainer. You can look, the price land's changed now, but for me and all the land we had, it was an absolute no-brainer to do it. We, we spent over a million dollars doing it, around $1.2 million doing it over a, a three or four-year period, and that came back instantly. It pretty much pays for itself in the first year every time you do it. Keeping an eye on those things, making sure your soil's correct. I re-spaded, re-ripped and re-spaded a bit of country last year because the soil still wasn't right. It was, I just never got enough clay up initially. Technology's changed. Now we have a D10 which can rip deeper. It, it did a beautiful job on all of this country getting clay up. So that's fixed that problem and it will fix it for probably the rest of my farming career. So little things like that where you're just keeping an eye on what's happening when something isn't producing like it should be, why isn't it? And address it. Don't just leave it. Do something about it. I suppose it's roughly it, Loggy. Yep. <laughs> you run a lot of livestock. How do they integrate into the business and why do you see them as being important? If I farmed uh, Cummins and uh, I had beautiful soil, I wouldn't run livestock. I'd be straight up in saying that. But I don't farm at Cummins. I have lots of very wet, semi-saline, what I call unarable, it's not unarable. It used to be cropped a lot of it, and it still could be. But it gets very wet, and it doesn't suit ripping and spading. It's too close to the water table. You can bring salt up when you're ripping and spading if you're not somewhat careful about what you do, and it just gets too wet. Plus, it grows really good feed. So for me, I'm always looking at the profitability of sheep versus cropping. I've looked at it all of my farming career and I'll continue to look at it all of my farming career. I do a budget every year. I look at my enterprise mix. I look at the profitability of livestock versus cropping every year. So on those paddocks, you know, I have cropped a lot of them in the past, but they just don't perform consistently well enough that they can outperform livestock returns with cropping. So it comes down to business. It comes down to the profitability of each individual paddock bit of land on your farm and you have to do that as a manager you have to assess the the capability of the land and assign that to an enterprise which is going to produce the maximum profit from that bit of land 
that's a real simple thing to do and that's what i did for my last year project at uni and we did that a long time ago went through and and took out all the wet country sowed pasture on it fenced it put water on it etc etc so we could run livestock on it and we took that to the next level i suppose with cell grazing and we we broke it up even further so we could more intensely run the livestock and rest of the country longer so i suppose part of that strategic planning course i did was the grazing for profit course it started implementing in 2006 or seven i forget now it was extremely dry and i had way too many sheep on the country i learned some lessons pretty quick but i suppose the reason i run livestock is for profitability there's not much else you can do there that compares with the returns from the livestock so I run over 10,000 DSC, but we'll just call it 10,000 DSC. It's more like probably 12, really. We run a fair few sheep on that area. A lot of it's not good grazing country, so it's semi-saline. It doesn't grow much more besides wheatgrass and, and Parkinsonella. Some of it's good, good country. But I suppose part of that grazing for profit course, one of the things that taught me was about perennial plants and how they can fit in your farm and in your grazing system. And I'm a big fan of perennial plants and I think I love the grazing you know, the cell grazing type concept where you have intense grazing for a short period and then a long period of rest it really suits perennial plants they thrive under that management cropping systems don't effectively increase organic carbon they maintain it and most of the time they'll actually slightly decrease it perennial plants can increase organic carbon it is a perfect system in the aspect that it uses all the water because the plant's living all the time. So when it rains, the plant grows. It uses all the sunlight because there's something green in the paddock all year round and it can, it can utilise that. To me, it is a perfect system, a perennial plant-based grazing system. That's evolved over time. We started sowing phalaris and lucerne and, and chicory and, and lots of different perennials. I suppose now it's evolved more to growing kaikuya. Kaikuya is an idiot-proof grass. It's productive. It's excellent at using water in the summer, whereas some other perennials aren't. Phalaris is fairly poor at using summer rainfall, uh, so it's fescue. Works really well. Uh, you've got cover at all times. You just can't have erosion. Yeah, I, I love that concept where I haven't talked about cover at all, but Cover's a really important thing on farms. You do not have bare country. You, you just avoid it. If you've got bare country, you're making mistakes and you have to realise you are and change your management because bare country is no good. You have to have cover at all times. You've got to maintain cover in a cropping system and in a grazing system. They both have to have cover and, and perennials are really good at that. And you, in a mixed farming business you're always benefiting in some way when it rains the summer rain we had this year we had about 150 mils of summer rainfall which is the most i've actually ever seen and my perennials just went nuts all summer it was exciting meanwhile from a cropping angle don't get me wrong we were accumulating water but i was spending thousands and thousands of dollars on chemical but there's there is also benefits for the cropping system especially if you have cover so the sheep are an integral part of the business they make up about 25 to 30 percent of my income so by far the bulk of the income for the for the business still comes from cropping they provide a buffer 
and they provide diversity of income. You know, if, if wheat price shits itself, um, the wool price might go through the roof or the lamb price might go through the roof. You'll catch it up. One thing will be down, something else will be up. You've got a diversity of income and it's a bit the same because I run a ewe lamb operation, so we, we have about three quarters of the ewes are mated to merinos currently and about a quarter are mated to crossbreds, but I, I also run a sheep feedlot. So I've just built a automated uh, sheep field feedlot last year and used it for the first time in the season just finished. Worked extremely well, had a few little teething issues, but nothing major. Reduced the workload dramatically, and I've been able to maximise the value of my sheep. Look, I've lot fed sheep for 12 plus years, but it was always fairly labour intensive. So the way I look at livestock is you have to maximise the value of your lambs. You know, people will say, oh, I got rid of my weather lambs at $110, you know, it was easy, rah, rah. And look, don't get me wrong, it is. But when I look at a weather lamb, I, I think $250 and I don't think anything less. So I make sure I get them to that. There is always a margin in feeding lambs. It's very rare. There's once in the last 12 years that it was pretty much borderline. And there's plenty of years you make heaps out of it. So little things like that where you can value add to that enterprise will pretty much create a new enterprise, but it value adds to the progeny that you've bred yourself. That's important for me. Wool is relatively important, but realistically, the meat return in my livestock enterprise is double, if not two and a half times what the wool return is. Yeah, they're an integral part of my business. I'm, it creates issues as far as labour goes. We, we're always busy, but I like being busy. And at the end of the day, as a manager, you just have to realise you need more people and employ them. It's realistically that simple if you had your time again what would you do differently and what is a good piece of advice you'd give a young farmer just starting out yeah i asked my father this and it wasn't actually that long ago it was probably i was about the time he retired i suppose or moved into lincoln and i said to my father if you had your time again what would you do differently and he said he said i would have been more aggressive in business he said, I would have bought more land, I would have run more sheep, grown more crops, been more aggressive as far as tried harder, worked harder. Not necessarily work harder as an individual, but employ more people, borrow more money. Look, that's not for everyone. It's easy to say that. Not everyone wants that goal and, and each to their own. That was my father and it's probably me too. Uh, well, not probably, it is. I had a lot of mates at uni, which are still very good colleagues and you know, friends, and, and we bounce stuff off each other all the time. And I can remember uh, one especially who farms in the mid-north telling me how cheap our land was in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s and just buy more land and buy more land. And, and look, we were. We were buying land. We could have been more aggressive, but we were buying enough land to push the business but still be able to be comfortable and sleep at night. But he was correct. Look, if I had my time again, I probably would have bought more land because it was cheap back then. And at the time, you don't think that. You think, how am I going to afford to do this? How am I going to get through these years? Interest rates are going up, et cetera, et cetera. I haven't got enough money to get the plan I require. Or I haven't got this or I haven't got that. In the end, 20 years down the track, you look back on it and you think it wasn't half as bad as you were thinking at the time. 
just to take some risk. I'm not saying being stupid about it, but understand what your business is capable of, understand what you're capable of, and don't be scared of employing people. Businesses don't grow without employing people. If you take the opinion you're never going to employ someone, your business will never grow. End of story. Big business is made big by good employees. Sourcing good people, paying them well, making sure you hang on to them as well as you can because people change their ideas about life and want to move on. But you, you have to work your farm out so it produces and it can service debt. And if, if you can service the debt, buy the land because if you don't, I know you'll regret it. I don't have regrets like that. I do momentarily, but we've always bought land and always been geared at some level, like I was talking about, you know, your level of equity and when you get to a certain amount, you should just really buy land or you've got to buy off farm investments or put your money somewhere where it's, where it's doing something because you don't work any harder if your money's working for you than you do if it's not. You might as well have it doing something for you. The one thing about continually buying land is you do have more work to do, more thought process, more organisation, even if you do employ more people. That creates some level of stress, but it also makes you feel like you're alive. I don't really enjoy doing nothing for very long. I, I want to want to be active, want to be thinking, want to be challenged. Yeah, and that really is the why we love farming. It, it's diverse. It changes. It, it's um, it's exciting. Uh, thank you for your time and sharing some wisdom today, Dave. I hope all the listeners can get something out of it. I hope they do too. Thank you. For more information about Air EP and to get involved with your local research committee or receive our e-newsletters, check out the Air EP website, airep.com.au, for our contact details and get in touch. We're always happy to chat.